Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today is the chair of the Democratic Party of Lane County, Chris Wick. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patty. It's good to be back. We have a lot to talk about. I took a week off and the world has fallen apart in 10 days. So uh, Thanks for taking that week off, man. Yeah. Let's see what happens. Yeah, I figured I was going to be hitting a lot of election coverage pretty big. My last episode was great. I interviewed Andrew Kalik. He's running for uh, Congress. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Next week, I'm going to have Doyle Canning on. I'm trying to do my best to get some of these unknown candidates some coverage so that people know, you know, who to, who to vote for. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's just, there's so little coverage for this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm doing the best I can. So to first, I want to talk about Russia. Uh, everyone starts by saying Ukraine. I'm calling it as it is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. In, you know, because everyone says Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, like they're guilty of anything. Uh, it's been 10 days and it's been extremely hard to watch the last few. It seemed like it started out kind of bungled. And now it looks like the Russians are attacking apartment buildings and have taken over control of a nuclear power plant. Whew, it's pretty wild. Uh, so let's just get into it. What are your thoughts on it? Well, you know, I mean, the first thing that I think is the the real... So the micro story and the macro story, right? Like the the first line story is the heroic um, the heroic defense of Ukraine by the people. Um, that that is, I mean, they're ready to fight to the death, man. And that that is some real real baller courage and conviction. And that I I wish that it didn't come to that, but I my heart is with them. Um, absolutely, my heart is with them. But the macro story, of course, and the big picture is that. This is the latest manifestation of the rise of authoritarianism in the 21st century, um, that we see it with ascendant power in China. We're seeing Russia deploy its hard power, I think, in like a last stand, last gasp effort to um, you know, prevent the hegemony of liberal democracy. And we see it inside of Western countries that are ostensibly democracies, right? Like we've seen some stuff in Poland over the last few years where a right, a far right party took control of the government. They are standing up to Russia. So maybe that the democratic urge is stronger there than we had thought. Hungary is very similar where they have had, a, you know, ostensibly a democracy that was taken over by a more authoritarian leader. Um, not that, that they still have elections, of course, and that Hungary is standing with the European Union as well. And so I think that the um, much 
many, uh, much ink has been spilled and many teeth have been gnashed about the twilight of representative democracy in those nations um, throughout the EU. Um, Brexit is a good example. And then here in the United States with the rise of Donald Trump. And that I think that what we are seeing with this, you know, unified front, um, a united front and stand from the Western powers is proof that democracy is not dead and that the liberal, um, that that classical liberal commitment to democracy is strong in the 21st century as well. And I think that we're up to the task. And so I, you know, I'm really proud of Joe Biden's leadership in this moment um, that he is, he is hitting all the right notes that, I mean, there, there's not any right notes, right? But he's doing the best that he can and that our response is unified. And so I, I see things like some of the sanctions. I'm not a foreign policy expert. You know, I work in the state of Oregon on, you know, state and local elections and some federal stuff, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty pleased with how the sanctions have been going. I'm pretty pleased with, um, you know, season the mega yachts and stuff. It's, those are pretty interesting. And that, you know, make those oligarchs feel, feel it where it hurts and their, their wallet and their status. There's a great, the last thing I'll say about it is, is there's a really great piece on the Atlantic that was posted this morning about from a sociologist about the effect of the seizing of the oligarchs assets that is a under appreciated effectiveness tool because part of being an oligarch and having ostentatious wealth is showing it off. And if you can't do that, then that, that is a huge loss of status and prestige. And so now we're seeing these Russian um, tycoons and like these, these guys who are close to Putin calling publicly for the war to end, you know, not because they're good people, but because they want their stuff back. Right. And, you know, I mean, ultimately it doesn't matter why you do the right thing. It matters that you do it. And so let's hope that Putin sees the writing on the wall and that he, um, I don't, I don't think he's going to, but let's hope he, he pulls back and quits before, um, while there's still time. Yeah. And I mean the, you know, the sanctions and all the economic push on the oligarchs, it's, it's designed basically to, like you said, kind of push maybe them to say, Whoa, maybe even get Putin out of power. You know, I don't think it's going to happen. And as far as Biden, I mean, you can't win as Biden, you know, because I think he has done a lot and he's also been patient and very, you know, forward in his in his verbiage. I mean, he was saying it before they invaded that it was going to happen, even when Ukraine was saying it wasn't, you know, so he was like, no, this is coming and we need to be prepared. But then you have criticisms where people are like, why aren't we there involved in it? And then also 10 seconds later saying like, they better not get us involved. And it's like, dude, you just can't win. You just can't win. It's so difficult. Now, yeah, and at the end of the day, man, like they're, while we can stand with them, you know, in principle and spirit and send, you know, support monetarily and with military technology, like at the end of the day, Ukraine is not a NATO country. Right. And so are we willing to accept the invitation? Because like we would not be starting World War III, but we would be accepting the invitation to start World War III right. at this time. And like I think that restraint is it's, called for. Yeah. Um, you know, and now if they invade a NATO country, that all chips are off and like, you know, we're gonna be moving to the bomb shelters. It's going to be terrible. And that could happen. And it's pretty scary. And, you know, what's really scary also is to watch a lot of the Republicans continue to play footsie with Putin. Is <laughs> You heard Donald Trump, right as it first was beginning, the invasion was beginning, call Putin a genius. And then, <laughs> you know, there's people that have criticized, criticized Trump for that. 
But this happens time and time again where they'll criticize him. And then a couple of weeks later, when the the followers and whatnot, they don't like the criticisms, they just kind of slide away and they don't do anything about it. It's like no one wants to hold this guy accountable. And it's just so obvious how in bed he is with Bi- with Putin, with Trump, I, Trump and Putin. I don't understand what is going on behind the scenes, but it's just obvious he's got a he's got a hard on for him. Well, I think a more interesting story, right, are the Republicans who don't do that. And so, you know, all my first big campaign was President Obama's reelection campaign in 2012. I said a lot of choice things about Mitt Romney at that time. I made fun of him for saying that Russia was our main enemy in the world when he said that in that debate. I made fun of that a lot. And you know what? Mitt Romney was right. I will yeah. I will admit it that I was wrong and Mitt Romney was right and that he is a Republican who's standing up in the moment. Mike Pence has said there is no room in the Republican Party for Putin apologists. Obviously, that's not factually true because there's a bunch of them there. But, you know, I think that we look at the um, downfall of what used to at least see themselves as the party of personal responsibility um, as they go farther into the, you know, into the tank for Trump. Um, it's, you know, it, it's scary to think about how some of those things that we're seeing, you know, around the world could, could happen here. And that the best evidence of that is the insurrection and treason that happened on January 6th. The only time in American history when the peaceful transfer of power was threatened. And I think that every candidate for every office in this nation should be forced to answer about their beliefs about that question. And that if you think that that is legitimate political discourse, I'm sorry, but that's treason. And that we have laws that prevent people who've committed treason from running for office. Yeah, and that, I, that is not it's not an acceptable it's not acceptable. Period. I've been asked many times why I don't interview local Republicans. And first of all, I've tried. And second of all, I would literally only have two questions. The first question would be about climate change. And the second would be about January 6th. And so the conversation would go nowhere. You know, and so I just I'm like, what's the point? I'd like to have some conversations with people talking about similarities and things that we can agree on. But those are as for candidates, you know, like uh, for candidates for governor, for example, that's all I would want to talk about, because it's like once we can't get past that, then I'm it's it's a deal breaker. So now with all of this stuff about Biden and and the way that he's handled or or discussed and talked about uh, Russia and, and the invasion of Ukraine, the timing was probably pretty good for Biden that the State of the Union was planned. And mm-hmm. and I watched a little bit of it. I was I was doing some stuff, so I, I caught a lot of highlights. And then I read some stuff, and I tried to listen to, to more of it later. But I watched some of the coverage afterwards, and the mainstream media was really trying hard to push the narrative that some of Biden's speech may be unpopular with progressives as he tries to unite the country. What were your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I don't, that's not what I took away from the speech. Um, you know, I think that the high points of the speech were he started out by talking about how we need to stand united in the face of um, authoritarian expansion, that we need to stand united in support of Ukraine against Russia. And then he outlined a four point unity agenda that literally everyone I know agrees with. I, I don't know anybody who does not agree with these ideas and that they are. One, dealing with the opioid epidemic. Two, um, increasing the support and for mental health services for children. Three was increasing the support and medical services for veterans. And four was doing a advanced research project for cancer with the goal of curing cancer. 
like I think everyone agrees with stopping the opioid epidemic, helping kids with their mental health, helping veterans and curing cancer like that. That's like the most unifying principles I can possibly think of. And so I, I don't get the hate about what he disappointed somebody. I mean, people look to the state of the union as a, um, I think people look to it for more than it is. It's like what's in it and what's not in it and that we should all have a take about it. And like, maybe people should just take a step back and look at what was presented. And I, th I think that again, in a context of that, we are fighting against authoritarian expansion abroad and, you know, treasonous insurrection at home, trying to reach out to people who don't agree and work on the things that we do agree about is a really solid move on um, that. That is what I would expect somebody who's good enough at politics to be president of the United States, that they would seize this moment in order to bring us together instead of use a use an address that is on national television to do points of division and try to tear us apart like that. That's what Trump did. And that was stupid that he did it that way. And so I do not believe that Biden choosing not to throw red meat to the base is in any way shunning them. I think that that's treating them with respect because where no matter where you are on that progressive to um, moderate Democrat spectrum, I think that everyone, well, I mean, everybody whose opinion I care about matters that everyone thinks that we need to stand united against the rise of authoritarianism, period. That is the number one issue in the world today. It is the number one issue in foreign policy, and it is the number one issue in domestic policy as well. And so if we can't all do that, <clears throat> then why, I mean, why, why don't we just give up? Right. I'm not going to give up but that we need to be able to stand united against authoritarianism, period. So the one, I mean, obviously he, he received, you know, high, high uh, praise for the speech. I know I read that his approval rating jumped 8%. It's up to like 47%, which is still pretty low. Whoa. But yeah, I saw 8%. that. 8%? Yeah, that was pretty substantial. That's a lot. That's awesome. And okay. I, you can't put too I much bearing. You can't put too much bearing on just like Facebook comment sections, but I was mm -hmm. scrolling at all. But I was scrolling through and one after another where this is the kind of speech we needed where this is just from average people where they're saying like mm -hmm. we needed we needed to bring people together as much as possible. I know it's impossible, but Biden was trying to do that, was trying to unite the, the you know, the people was trying to be the president of all Americans. And and I, I that's, you know, from the little bit that I did see, that's what I saw. And I, and I know that that's Biden's goal. Uh, I want to talk about the comments about he made about the defund the police. And actually he literally quote said, no, we want to fund the police. But before I do, I want to have a little side note. You had mentioned children's mental health and mm -hmm. university of Oregon did something pretty awesome this week. Yeah. Uh, they purchased Concordia university up in Portland, which was defunct. They had closed because of COVID mm -hmm. and never reopened. They went online and then they just were like, we're going to, we're going to cut our losses and we're going to shut down. And so Connie, and uh, Steve Ballmer, Steve Ballmer mm -hmm. is the owner of the Clippers. People know him from Microsoft. Connie Ballmer, his wife, which is she, this was her baby, from what I've been told. She's an alumni of the university. They fund. Mm -hmm. They dropped four hundred and fifty million dollars into create a fund that would give scholarships, so an adornment or whatever it's called. So like it would create scholarships for students to study children's mental and behavioral health up in Portland at the Concordia location, which will now be called, you know, the, I don't know the exact title, but it's the university of Oregon owns it now. Yeah. And it's huge. And it sounds like they got, they got it for, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say this because <laughs> I did talk to someone off, 
off the record a little bit, but I did get a number that they bought it for. And I'm, I think it's been reported. It was $60 million for the location, mm-hmm. which is pennies on the dollar for 23 acres of educational buildings that are already there and ready to go. You know, and it's, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but well, it's a lot of money. And that it's, you know, the price of, if you're going to turn that money into condos is one thing versus having a public good in the purpose. Right. So like, I mean, that that's factored into the purchase price as well. And it was sure. a benefactor. It's not like it was taxpayers. It was a benefactor, yeah. you know, uh, Connie and, and Steve Ballmer. So I'm really excited about that. So I wanted to at least touch on that, that that's really cool. It's going to be the first of its kind in the country studying children's behavioral yeah. health. It's really great. You know, Big kudos to the Ballmer family for doing that. And, you know, Connie Ballmer has been on the board of trustees at UO. And so you may, you may know this, but before I worked at emergence and then before I worked for Hillary Clinton and before I still worked for emergence. And then before I was the campaign manager for Senator Beyer, I worked at the children's farm home in Corvallis as a skills trainer. And so essentially like a floor staff in psychiatric residential treatment for teenagers. And so I, I've spent a lot of time um, and had uh, a lot of harrowing situations um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of heartbreak and a lot of nightmares around mental health for teenagers, at least. And so that that I, I know for a fact that that is going to make a huge difference. Um, and so I'm I'm so happy to um, I'm, I'm so happy that that happened and that I have thanks in my heart for the bombers. And it makes me really proud to be an alumni of the University of and, Oregon. Yeah. That's and the U of O. There's a lot of things lately that I have major criticisms of the U of O. This is a shining moment for them. I, I yeah, was really happy about job. it. So now back to the State of the Union address. The thing with Biden that I think got a lot of attention and maybe the media was trying to say, oh, this is going to be unpopular with progressives, was that he literally came out and said, I do not uh, support the defund the police. In fact, we, quote, need to fund the police. What do you think that means? Well, I mean, I think that it is a dose of reality that that is the position of a substantial majority of Americans, including me. Like, let's be clear, like, I also do not want to defund the police at all. I think that that's ridiculous. And especially if we take it from that national level down to the local, here in Lane County, we have a systemic for decades underinvestment in law enforcement that has resulted in you know, rampant criminal behavior. If you ever look on Lane County mugshots, you know that. And that it's, you know, we don't have enough police officers in Eugene. We don't have enough in Springfield. We don't have enough sheriff deputies and that we don't have enough capacity at the jail. Tom Turner, who was three sheriffs ago, two sheriffs ago, Sheriff Harold now, Sheriff Trapp before him, Sheriff Turner before that. Tom Turner was a Democrat. And he told me that at the time after the jail levy had passed the first time, the first jail levy, so we got up to, you know, 200 some jail beds that Lane County at that time had 10% of the average number of jail beds for a community of our size. So 350, 400,000 people that we have 10% of the number of jail beds. That is the average. And so that, I mean, that's one example. When I served on the Eugene civilian review board, before I moved to Springfield, there were in the city of Eugene, at that time, so then I know that there's been a little bit of increase in staffing, but not nearly enough. At that time, there was 193 FTEs of sworn officers for a city of 170,000 people. Where I grew up in Canton, Ohio, a city of 75,000 people, there was 175 FTEs. So the city is more than double, and the number of FTEs more is only 20. 
That's insane. Yeah. Like that. And that, that is what we see. I, I see it every day working at treatment court. I see it every day working in downtown Eugene. And so I think that Joe Biden is right about that. And that I do not know of any serious political candidate in our area anyway, who supports defunding the police. Yeah. Well, I don't know of any elected official or serious candidate for office that supports that because it's unhinged and it's not, it does not pay attention to what is going on in people's real lives. And that I think that Joe Biden is right. And I think that he is speaking to the vast majority of Americans. And I think that he is pushing back against a, a false and destructive narrative that right-wing media has put out about the Democrats that somehow, because some backbench members of Congress support defunding the police, that that is a party position, that's insane. Right. And so I, I don't support it. I don't know any Democrats here who are decision makers who support it. And that I, you know, we support reforming the police so that they are treating all Americans and all people in our community fairly, that they are not discriminating against people who are members of communities who've been historically marginalized, that they are not using force inappropriately. And I, I mean, I would love to talk about this later, if you want, the steps that were taken here in Springfield yeah, we're going to make to, that yeah. happen. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's just bad framing from the gate, the defund the police stuff, because it was always for most people that even were like willing to entertain the thought, they were wanting to reallocate funds. And we have cahoots in Lane County that is so instrumental in the way that we do things. And even my interview with Springfield, the new Springfield chief Shearer, he was in total support and collaboration with cahoots. And obviously he was like, I'm not the person that's going to make the decision on funding. He's like, but I can tell you right now, there's not enough, you know? And so we need more funding. We need to fund organizations like cahoots, but we also have to fund the police so that there's adequate training and like you mm -hmm. said, that's a good time to segue into the local connection that the Register Guard just did a piece on the Springfield Advisory Committee recommendations on police, police oversight. It sounds like the committee is recommending creating a police oversight commission. And Chief Shear and I discussed this when I interviewed him, that he opposed the commission because the department accountability was the responsibility of the chief, which mm -hmm. I definitely was like, whoa, that was a my ears perked at that moment. And I, I, I learned from it is what I'm saying. I'm not saying I was like totally yeah. against it. I just was not necessarily expecting that answer. So first of all, for the average listener, they may not understand. They may not have even gotten this deep into this interview. <laughs> They're not interested, but what's the difference between a committee and a commission? Well, I mean, it's the name, right? Like that there are different police overstrike structures that can be set up. Um, and you know, I, my, experience about this issue is based on the fact that I served, before I moved to Springfield, I served on the Eugene Civilian Review Board, which is the police oversight committee in Eugene. For I served for five years. Um, I was vice chair for one year and I was chair for a year. So like I, I have had a lot of experience with this. And that I agree with Chief Shear that the discipline needs to be in the purview of the chief, that it needs to be in the chain of command, and that the chief is the ultimate arbiter of you know, whether uh, allegation is sustained or not, and what is going to be the remedy for that. Um, I, I think that that does have to be the way that it is. And so the way that the city of Eugene set this up, and I think that Eugene has the best model in the nation for this, by the way. Wow. So in addition to cahoots, the, the Eugene has, there's basically, there's um, three different groups involved in the police oversight. There's on the one hand, the police department who goes out and they do their job 
and that when complaints are generated, either through the um, process of people filing complaints or whether it is, you know, one of the big good developments in Springfield is that we're starting to use a software, and I think it's IA Pro, I don't want to be misquoted on the name of it, but a software that allows the command staff to like track what is going on, like how many uses of force a specific officer has, or how like in pretty much real time, like how, how that's going, and that that way internal complaints can be generated as well if that there's something that doesn't line up about, you know, the report on the incident that happened. And so Eugene, as that was implemented in Eugene, there went from being mostly external reports and very few internal reports to the other way around to like, you know, a moderate number of external reports, but a lot of internally generated reports of misconduct because that we have this, this tool that tracks it and we know that it's not right. And so what will happen then will be the, if there's a complaint, there will be an investigation into the complaint. It'll be referred to for internal affairs. Internal affairs would do an investigation and turn in their investigation and their recommendation to that. If it's a patrol officer, they turn it into the sergeant. They turn If the investigation gets a sergeant, they turn it into a lieutenant. If the investigation into a lieutenant, they turn it into a captain. If the investigation into a captain, they turn it into the chief. And that all of the officers in that officer's chain of command have the opportunity to review the investigation and make a recommendation. And here's what Eugene does. And then that that's pretty normal. We could do, we could decide to do that in Springfield today. Um, here's what is different. Eugene employs a police auditor and that this, I think that this is the trick and it's expensive, but it, it's really worth it is that the police auditor. And this, this is a, like, you know, we want to go down to like our branches of government, right? And so in a city like Springfield or Eugene that has a city council manager model, that the city council and the mayor is the legislative branch of government. Even the mayor, the mayor is part of the legislative branch because they're a part of the city council. And that the city manager is the head of the executive branch. Now, that means that the head of the executive branch is not an elected official. They're an appointed official. They're hired to do the job. And that if the auditor was in the chain of command of the, like, because who's above the chief? Who is the chief's commanding officer, essentially? It's the city manager. And so if the city manager hires the police auditor, this it puts the, it puts the city manager into conflict because if the chief recommends one thing and the auditor recommends something else, there's a, there's a conflict there. And so the way that Eugene got around that, and this is brilliant, and I really think that Springfield should consider this, is they amended the charter to allow the police auditor to be one of three employees who are hired directly by the city council and report directly to them. Those three employees in Eugene are the city manager, the police auditor, and the municipal court judge, which is the third branch of government, the judicial branch. Right. And so having a police auditor who is not in the same chain of command as the chief provides truly independent oversight because the auditor is not accountable to the chief or the city manager. They are accountable to the city council. And so what would happen in Eugene, again, so back to the narrative where, you know, sergeant has recommended, lieutenant's recommended, captain has recommended, the auditor who has a different, he's not a sworn officer, he has a different set of investigative skills, has been participating in this investigation the whole time, he can make a recommendation to the chief as well. And I would say two thirds of the time, it was the same, but a third of the time, the recommendation was different. And then the police chief using all of that information from both his chain of command sources 
and from the independent police auditor is able to make a determination about did the conduct occur and what should the discipline be, right? I think that that system has a lot of good checks and balances, but it also maintains the chain of command for the chief. Because at the end of the day, if no one, if, if there's not one person in charge, there's no one in charge. And so a police department, you have to have somebody who's in charge, that you have to have someone who is ultimately accountable. As we found out when, you know, the last police chief was forced to retire based on malfeasance in the department, that someone has to be accountable when that happens. Right. And then going back to the model we use in Eugene, right, that after the police chief has made their determination, the case can be reviewed by the civilian review board. And this is where I was at. And that the civilian review board is a group of a broad group of citizens. There's seven in on the Eugene version. I don't know if Springfield will want to do seven or what, but like that they have the opportunity to review the completed cases to provide feedback to the chief and to the police department and to the community based on what are the community's concerns with this case. And so there, there are several cases where the civilian review board was more critical, I think, than the police department. And that that changed the policy of the Eugene Police Department because the third part of that model is what Springfield has is that police advisory committee. Eugene's version of that is called the Eugene Police Commission. And the Eugene Police Commission does not look at individual cases or incidents. In fact, that's totally outside of their purview. What they do is that they look at the policies of the police department and they propose changes. And again, at the end of the day, it's the chief, the chief makes the decision, but he makes it with that input and that community input is very valuable. And so a really good example um, that changed policing in Eugene, absolutely, is that when I joined the Civilian Review Board um, was when it was in 2013 and that that was when we first started hearing about de-escalation as a needed tactic. And so many of our cases were about incidents where the actual use of force was not against policy. And it was like, given the circumstances at the moment of the force, it was the appropriate level of force. However, in the lead up to that moment, many opportunities to deescalate the situation were not taken. And so month after month, our civilian review board would talk about de-escalation, like we need to de-escalate, like this is another case where they could have been de-escalated. I wanna give huge kudos to Steve McIntyre, who was one of my mentors on that board. He's a vice president over at Selco. He served on that board, I think for 10 years, I mean, a long time. And that he was the, the champion of de-escalation. And eventually that de-escalation made its way to the police commission. And now it is the policy of the Eugene Police Department that officers are expected to de-escalate situations. And now that if they do not do that, right? I mean, some situations can't be de-escalated, right? But if they do not do that when they could have, that is now grounds for an administrative investigation and consequences when it wasn't 10 years ago. Right. And so like that, it, that model, it's, I acknowledge that it is slow. It is not built for rapid response, but also it is built with checks and balances in mind and that it is built with professionalism in mind. And ultimately any kind of like review process, if the officers and the union do not believe that they will be treated fairly, that the incentive is for them to not participate. And so anything that is, anything that we do in Springfield, it has to be fair. Um, and not fair, like we're going to come at, I mean, so many times I, I hear accountable this, accountable this, accountable this all the time. And so many times what people mean by being accountable, what they're really talking about is revenge. 
And yeah. that that's not, yeah. we can't have that. No. Like no. That it needs to be fair to the officers. It needs to be fair to people who complain that there shouldn't be retaliation against somebody who complains, even if their complaint ultimately is found to be within policy. It needs to be fair to the chief and to the city manager and the elected officials because they have to like administer the policy and that it needs to be fair for everyone involved, right? Like it's one of the, I'm a Rotarian man, like the four-way test, is it fair to all concerned? And is it the truth? And if it's not both of those things, that it's probably not a really good mechanism to get true accountability. It's more about revenge. And so I am very, I'm in agreement with the chief about the idea that the discipline should not be left to appointed community members. Discipline has got to stay with the chief. And that I would be very hesitant to put, you know, put volunteers um, who are not trained police officers in a position where they are um, deciding uh, essentially guilt or innocence and what will the penalty for the infraction be. But that's, um, I think that's a recipe for disaster. No, I agree. And especially because it does change hands and you don't want, you know, people on the extremes to be the ones making those decisions that are the kind of people that might want to seek revenge with those kind of decisions. Mm-hmm. I really encourage anybody, if they haven't listened to the episode I did with, with Springfield Chief Shearer, it was great. You know, just hearing what he had to say, we covered a lot. So you should go back and listen to that. And a lot of the stuff that we talked about is actually coming to fruition. So it's really interesting. So we got to move on. There's an election coming up and it's, it's massive. And I know that the turnout in the primary elections nationally and locally are both very small and we need to get people on board to, to, you know, use their voice. Some of the big ones, I mean, we've got the governor's race, we've got fourth congressional district, which is Peter DeFazio's seat. And we'll talk about that at length. We got Lane County commissioner races, us. There's some city council races, which I'm not going to talk about a lot today, but I am going to have Mark Molina on who's running for Springfield City Council. And we'll talk about it more at that at that time. So let's just start off with governor. I honestly know so little about what's happening in this race other than that Nick Kristoff, New York Times, I believe, writer that mm-hmm. was was basically deemed ineligible, appealed it, yeah. lost his appeal. He's not going to be running. I didn't think that was a good idea for him to be the candidate because of that <clears> fact. <throat> because he was living in New York, not what, two years ago. So he's not really living in Oregon, even though he's got a history and I've heard the arguments, but he's not eligible. So let's not even really get into that too much. But what is happening in this race? I mean, I've re- I've been able to find very little. That's a good question, man. The, not a lot of people are hearing about it. Um, and so, you know, yeah, Kristoff was DQ'd. Um, there are, I think, several other candidates who are um, not serious contenders that the two candidates and and I don't know what's going on in the Republican primary except that the family values Republican candidate was outed as that he and his wife were members of a swingers club in Portland so that that's the only thing I know about the Republicans which, which is fine is, if know, that's what they want to do but they're hypocrites so I mean yeah it's kind of on brand for the family values wing of the Republican party right but in the Democratic primary there's two candidates who can win there's speaker of the house Tina Kotek and there's state treasurer Tobias Reed um, and that no one really knows a lot about the race. Um, there's not a lot of information out there about it. And so, you know, I think that the most interesting dynamic of this race is that Speaker Kotek um, has been raking in endorsements from and money from unions, uh, from progressive allied identity groups. Um, a lot of the really important parts of the Democratic coalition are endorsing her campaign. And rightly so. She's been very effective as Speaker of the House. And that one would think that that 
amount of institutional muscle would put her way ahead. And she's not. And that that is the defining factor in the race, I think, at this time is that she should be way in front, but Tobias Reed is still within striking distance. Tobias Reed just got his first very high profile endorsement of former Democratic Governor Barbara Roberts, who is like the gold standard for the conscience of the party endorsement, um, that she is, I think, probably the most popular living Democrat in the state. Um, you know, in our part of the state, DeFazio is probably more popular, but overall statewide, Barbara Roberts is beloved. And that her endorsing Tobias Reed is a big deal for his campaign. And it's a big deal for, um, you know, voters who want to have a close race that they can decide between the candidates. I think that, you know, another interesting dynamic of that race is that Tobias Reed is the state treasurer. He's won two statewide elections and he served 10 years in the House of Representatives. And that he is the outsider candidate because of those big endorsements and because it is perceived and whether or not this is true, I don't know, that Speaker Kotek would represent more of a continuation of Governor Brown where Tobias Reed has the opportunity to do some things a little bit differently. I, that, that is a perception that I hear. I, you know, I have not decided who I'm gonna vote for. I'm not endorsing in that race. Um, and so I think that it's incumbent on Democrats it's, you know, the, the information is not getting out there in the way that I would have expected. And so I'm hoping that there will be more coming out. Um, Speaker Kotek is actually doing her big field launch today. Um, it's multi-site around the state. She is in Bend, but the um, Eugene version of that event is happening, I think, actually right at this moment, happening at the DPLC office. And so the DPL, just to be clear, the Democratic Party of Lane County does not take positions in partisan primaries, that we believe that the primary is the endorsement and that we will support whoever wins the primary in the general election. And so, you know, our um, hosting Tina Kotek's event at our office does not indicate an endorsement. It's just we, our candidates can use our office to launch events. If they and that's set it the up. same with my show. I mean, just because I have someone on doesn't mean that it's an endorsement. Yeah. It's, it's literally just trying to give, give them an opportunity to be heard. Now, it's funny because a lot of times people criticize elections the pro the process for for it being too long so maybe this time you're not seeing as much coverage it's designed because i know that in the primaries the people that tend to vote are the people that are more engaged and then mm -hmm. in the general you'll have kind of all the other people involved so after the primary now you need to vote guys whoever's listening T definitely mm -hmm. turn out and vote and educate yourself you know and and google these candidates i mean that's when you get your ballot you can google the candidates and you can read their platforms that's really important this may may 17th but also we're going to find more and more about once the primaries are decided and the general election but there is seats sometimes that if you don't vote in a primary if they get 51%, it's over, you know, you know, so I don't know about. Well, and one of the most important seats that I've heard even less about than the governor is the race for labor commissioner. Right. Um, Val Hoyle, the incumbent labor commissioner is running for Congress. And so she is not running for reelection for labor commissioner. And that there, again, that's a race where I think that there's two candidates that can win and full disclosure that I have endorsed a candidate in that race. Um, it's a nonpartisan race where, um, you know, the two top candidates are Casey Kula, who's a um, county commissioner in Yamhill County, and Christina Stevenson, who is a civil rights attorney. And that I, I've endorsed Christina Stevenson in that race. And that she is, uh, she is an amazing uh, champion for our values, that she and I were both recruited in the, I think it was the very first national candidate training for the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. And so she and I attended that training and watch that event in Washington, D.C. 
along with, um, from Oregon, it was uh, Christina Stevenson and me and Senator James Manning, Representative Teresa Alonzo Leon. So like a real, like that's a real good delegation from Oregon. But some other people who attended that training that you may know of is Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, um, Representative Nanette Berrigan from um, California, that there have been, there just have just been a lot of really good people who've come up through the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. And so that's how Christina and I first got hooked up and that we have been working together ever since and that I think that she's the best choice for labor commissioner, which is why I broken from my previous practice and endorsed her in this race. Right. Now, you had mentioned uh, the congressional fourth congressional district. This is Peter DeFazio's seat. He's retiring. Uh, and you had mentioned Val Hoyle. She, would you say that she's considered the front runner at this point? I mean, I think that it would be dishonest to not yeah. acknowledge that Val Hoyle is a heavy front runner. Yeah, labor um, secretary. And so she's she's way out. She's way out in front in yeah. terms of money, in terms of her like her coalition is much better defined. Um, and that she, you know, Val is running a great campaign. Yeah. Um, that I am very impressed. And I'll just full disclosure, I'm not endorsing any of these candidates. Sure. But as an observer, like I'm very impressed with Val's campaign that she has earned the endorsement of Congressman DeFazio, which is a big which is deal. Pretty big. She's, yeah. She's earned the endorsement of Senator Jeff Merkley, which is also a big deal. Yeah. Um, and that she is hitting all the right notes right now. So I would say that it's Val versus the field. And if we if we had points on it, it'd be Val and probably a couple of touchdowns. Yeah. So I did really enjoy the interview that I had with Andrew Kalik. He was very impressive with, you know, he's very well versed, very well spoken. I'm looking forward to next week. I'll be I'll be interviewing Doyle Canning in this race. And, you know, she has done some great work uh, on the pipeline on the coast. And she's she's really gotten some support. She's very progressive, but she's gotten a lot of support from people across the aisle with that work that she's done. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing what she has to say. I really, really, really encourage everybody listening to at least check out those candidates because they're they're awesome. Uh, so let's talk about Lane County Commissioner races in East well, Lane County. Let, go ahead. Let's go back to Congress for just a minute. That like I think that it's really interesting. You know, Val is is a known candidate that she has not universal, but she has very high name recognition. People know who she is. She's been on their ballot before. She's been on a on a statewide ballot twice for a secretary of state in a race that she did not win and labor commissioner in a race that she did. And so I think that the challenge for Andrew Kallick, who I also agree is very impressive and has some really good ideas, and Doyle Canning, who ran in the district the last time, is really how do they get their, their name out? How do they get their ideas out to the broader amount of people who aren't the kind of people who sign up for email lists from candidates and politicians? You know, I, I know that um, Doyle in particular has a great opportunity because last time, you know, a lot of people just, well, DeFazio, that's it. I'm not willing to even hear anybody else out. Um, to be clear, I was one of those people. Sure. DeFazio's on the ballot. I'm voting for him, period. And so now that there is a wider range of people who are, might be open to her message. And so I think that, and, you know, Andrew, this is his first campaign. And so, like, I think that... Um, I, I think I'm very interested to see what happens. And I think that they both have a really great opportunity and that just because Val is ahead um, doesn't mean that somebody can't catch up just sure. like we're seeing in that race with the governor's race. But there's one thing I do want to touch on, which is 
that there is this, there are competing narratives coming out of the campaigns um, that Val Hoyles, the narrative from her, one of the narratives from her campaign, and this is not about any candidates. This is about the nature of the district. And I think that this is worth remarking on that from Val's campaign and from Peter DeFazio's campaign previously, you are hearing that our district is swingier than it looks, um, that there are people here that, um, you know, there are Democrats here who vote Republican for a number of reasons, that there are not the kind of suburbs in this district that where there are people who are still vote registered Republicans who now vote for Democrats in that partisan shift. And so both Val Hoyle and Peter DeFazio have pointed this out for years. And I've had conversations with them back to my first year as party chair in 2015 about this topic when I, I think that that's worth noting. You're seeing from some of the newer candidates this narrative that, oh, because this district is plus 8D, it is a safe Democratic seat. And so you should not worry about electability and vote for the progressive. And I I mean, I want to address that in that, you know, I don't necessarily believe in electability arguments. I, I believe in that on the presidential level, but not as much on the congressional level. Like if you agree with um, one of these candidates, Doyle or Andrew Kallick or one of the other candidates even on their policies and their, you know, their ideas, you should vote for them. I, I think that they're in a partisan primary because it, electability is who can win the election. The only way to know who's electable is to run the election I, and see right. who wins. And yeah. so it's not like electability is not a like foretold prophecy of who can win. But I will caution people very sternly that that view of this as a safe democratic district is wrong. It is wrong, it is not true that there are a ton of people who are out there who are registered Democrats who will not vote for our candidates and the only Democrat that they would vote for on their ballot was Peter DeFazio. And I I know that because I have literally called those people. I have spoken to them and that I've spoken to them for years and that they have become more hostile to us as the years go on, but because they haven't moved, why would they re-register? that they don't necessarily care to vote in the primary, but in the general election, these are those, you know, much discussed crossover DeFazio Trump voters. And so I think to take that dynamic for granted and just to think this is a safe democratic district, so do whatever you want, that that is folly. Um, That that's not, it's not true. And the Republicans, the Republicans have, you know, Scarlatos who's, who's got name recognition and he was on dancing with the stars. So that's dangerous. Yeah. I mean that when you're, when your chief intellectual accomplishment in your life was dancing with the stars, maybe you shouldn't run for Congress. Yeah. But also don't defraud charities about veterans. There's like, there's like a circle in hell that is for people who defraud charities that serve veterans. Like I'll just put that out there. But there is, it is, it is very important too. Like you had said, DeFazio had so much support from people that would be willing to vote for Trump, you know? And so Mm -hmm. that is not small because that can definitely, when you lose that name and that experience, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it falls. We do have to move on because we got to talk about Lane Mm -hmm. County commissioner, uh, in East Lane County, we've got Heather Buck is the democratic candidate, uh, Joe, Joe Bernie in Springfield. Joe Bernie is awesome. Joe Bernie, I feel like, is reflective of Oregon's through and through. He's pro-worker, has worked to keep people in their homes as well as help the homeless. Uh, and 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 I loved when I got to talk to him on the on the podcast. So, again, if you want to learn more about Joe Bernie, you can listen to that. Heather Buck, I met at the fairgrounds. I volunteered uh, at the DPLC tent the day of the shooting. That was an interesting day. And I met her, and she's 
I don't know a lot about her, but she was extremely warm. She was kind. I was really honored that she knew who I was. <laughs> but you know, so it's cool she, that she's I, a listener to the podcast. I, I've we've been talk, hearing we've that. Talked yeah. about the podcast before. Yeah, and it means a lot to me that I'm included in the conversation. You know, and that you I should call her and see if she'll come on. I've been trying to reach out. I need. I'll talk to you off air uh, about a good way to reach her. I tried through Facebook, and some people do, and some people don't with Facebook Messenger. But I wouldn't blame her for not. So yeah, so that race, you know. Joe, let's talk about Springfield with Joe Bernie and why it's so important that that people mm-hmm. at least you know educate themselves on Joe Bernie because he's great. So what what do you have to say about that? Well, yeah, Joe Bernie is great. Is what I have to say about it. Exactly. So Springfield is my district. That Joe Bernie is my county commissioner, and I am um, very pleased with what he's been able to accomplish in four years. Um, that his steady hand at the wheel during the wildfires and the during the the let me take that back. Heather was chair during the wildfires. Joe was chair during the like COVID recovery year um, that he did a really great job that he is the champion for the community benefits agreement, which is a game changing yeah. idea. Like I, 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 this is probably out of all like ideas in politics, the one that I support the most and that Joe Bernie is the champion for, which is the idea that when we are doing public contracting, we're, we're the, you, the government is using its purchasing power to buy stuff. We should be, focusing on more than just what is the lowest price, but we should be focused on when we're, when we are purchasing something, right? Like we, the government should be an ethical consumer. And so is the company we're purchasing from when this mostly happens in capital construction, are they paying a living wage? Are they offering families of workers health insurance? Are they engaged in, you know, sustainable practices, right? All, are they hiring local businesses? Like, all of those things about the ways that the government can use its money to reinvest in the community, I, I think is game-changing and very powerful. Joe Bernie not only got this through the Lane County Commission and championed it and got it passed, which is a model for all of the other districts in Lane County, and now other districts are working on their own version of community benefits agreements, including you know 4J Lane Community College. I hope next year we hear more about that in Springfield. Um, not only that, he helped author a law that was carried, the bill was carried by Senator James Manning to make this available to people statewide, which is amazing because the main argument against community benefits agreements was that there was some uh, pearls clutched about, well, is this even legal? Do we have to use the lowest bid by state law? Well, it was legal. You didn't have to do that. But now the law says affirmatively that these community benefits agreements are legal. And I think that every Democrat should support these and that every jurisdiction that is controlled by Democrats should pass them, that they're a huge deal. And that Joe Bernie, this was, I mean, he did not invent this, but in Oregon, he is the one who's driving the conversation from right here in Springfield. And that that is a man who is worth reelecting and supporting. And so I'm, you know, I think I, I promised him that I would knock on, you know, 500 or a thousand doors. I don't remember what I said, but I'm, I'm excited to do it. You know, I'm excited to tell people about this. His opponent, has a massive billboard on 126. The only thing that I like about the billboard is that Rick Dancer's stupid ass billboard is gone. So, <laughs> so I will you say know that they have the same haircut though. They do. They do. Uh, Rick Dancer. That's all he has is he has his silver Fox image and Rick Dancer no longer lives here. And that's a, that's something that we should dance and celebrate about. But anyways, yeah, he's got an opponent. Joe Bernie does. Uh, I think David Lovell is his name. That is a, 
commercial real estate guy. Is that right? Or is it more residential? Yeah, he's a um he's like a developer type. There's I a lot of money. There's a lot of money and I don't know a lot about it. And I really don't want to give it too mm-hmm. much energy. We don't have a ton of time. But yeah, I mean, I, I just think Joe Bernie's incredible. Anyone listening, go listen to that episode I did with him because we talked about Senate Bill 420 that he had passed or he had he had authored or helped write and then James Manning was able to push through and it's amazing and it's great for workers and it's great for the state. And it's so, you know, burn Joe Bernie was talking about how he was so inspired by Bernie Sanders's campaign. And he looked through and he's like, Bernie for Bernie. <laughs> and he looked through and he's like, how can I make these, these things happen for Oregon? And these things that Bernie Sanders was about are popular, like a, like a DeFazio. They're popular across the board. That's what people don't understand. You talked about electability, Bernie Sanders was somebody that people that are outside of the typical party spheres were super interested in some of the things he was saying. You know, it's like I always talk about it. It's like whenever I'm debating, you know, in the barbershop and I'm talking politics with people, I'll say stuff like, I just want health care. Like, come on now. Like, we're, we're talking about, you know, verb semantics and all this other stuff. I just want health care. And everyone wants health care, you know, and there's a lot of things people agree on. But Joe Bernie's great, so check him out. And Heather Buck is great as well in East Lane County. I'm gonna try to reach out to her and see if I can get her on before the before the uh, primary. So yeah, Chris Wig, the chair of the Democratic Party of Lane County. The last thing I want to talk about briefly, not get super deep into it, is that the mask mandate is going to be lifted March 12th officially. Springfield schools and 4J schools have have uh, voted to the school boards have voted to follow suit and to you know, follow what the state is doing. I want people to understand that this is uh, basically the government's kind of stepping back as far as their role. It is up to the individual now to protect yourself. There's an information there with vaccine, with K95 masks that fit your face. (laughs) You know, if you want to protect yourself, you can. And so the people that choose to keep wearing a mask, let's really not shame them. Let's support that. Because that means that they have a reason that they're doing that, whether they don't feel safe themselves or they're trying to protect one of their immunocompromised loved ones at home, that it's important that we allow people to just do what's good for them. We've had two years of a lot of, you know, division on this. And at this point, I think it's time. I think it's time for the for the government to step back and let the people make their decisions because there's enough information. Get your booster shots you know, and then you're at so much lower risk of being hospitalized. I'm scared a little bit. I'm going to, I'll be honest because I have not had COVID and so to the best of my knowledge, I mean, I guess I could have been asymptomatic. I don't have any reason to think I have been. And so I probably will end up getting it because I work with the college kids that don't, that are not going to be wearing masks starting the 12th. And so I'll probably have to miss work and I hopefully don't end up, I don't think I'll end up in the hospital, but I probably will have to miss work. You know? Well, you got your booster shot, right? I did. And, but I've got friends that have gotten booster shots that actually, I don't know if I can say that. I know I have friends that have had multiple, two shots at least that have been, have, have had serious bouts with COVID recently, recently. So I don't know what's changing next week completely other than the fact that hospitalization rates are down and that there's the information and there's protections there and there's treatment there also, you know? So yeah, I think, I mean, I think that you're right, that it is. Um, it's time for, you know, we, we are a nation that supports, I mean, at least we say that we support individual responsibility and that a public health pandemic is not the time to assert that, um, but that we are now at a place where 
those vaccines and booster shots are available. Masks are readily available. You know, we know what we need to do to protect ourselves and our families. And so, I, I mean, I think that the governor is right on um, and the CDC is right on in terms of, you know, we have reached, I mean, we've reached a point where people aren't going to do it anymore. Right. And so that, you know, I would also, you know, share your call to let's be kind to each other. You know, if somebody wants this whole time, you know, all of the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers that are saying, well, we just want it to be our choice. Well, it's going to be your choice now. So I don't think that there's any anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers who probably watch your show, but if there are, there's a few nice to people, man, like that we're going to do it your way now. So be kind and be chill about it. And hopefully it's not like last time. Hopefully it's not another variant pops up and then we're like, oops, you know, but I think that time will tell. Uh, I do still want people to stay six feet from me. I, I really, I appreciate that. Uh, you and I have become friends now, and I think that we've maintained a three mile distance at all times. And so, I think most of the time, probably. No, yeah. I just have. I, it's funny because I've done a lot of this stuff with Zoom, and I really haven't done any of the in, pre, in person stuff since I became a precinct committee person. I haven't been to anything in person, and I know talking to Irene Henjim, she's always like so gung ho about getting in person. So, I, I. I know that it's coming and I'm excited too. I joke about that, but I, you know, I work in a job where I have to touch people. So I'm, I'm definitely in my personal life. I'm like, I just want to be alone, you know, cause I do it all day long at work, you know, where I'm, where I'm cutting people's hair and I love what I do, but yeah. So May 12th or March 12th, sorry, March 12th key date is the end of the mask mandate. It's actually technically 1159 on the 11th. So if you want to be crazy, you could take that thing off at 1145 and be like, woohoo, you know, I'm wild. No, but also uh, May seventeenth is the primary. Is it what is the deadline passed to register? What is the date? No. Okay. The deadline is to register is I think in the I don't have it in front of me, but it's in the end of April. Okay. Um, usually it's right before the ballots go out, so you can still register. You can still change your address if you wanna. If you are a non-affiliated voter and that you want to vote in one of the party primaries, all you have to do to be able to vote is just re-register as a member of that party, and that if you don't like us. I think, you know, as, as a chair of the Democratic Party, I obviously am a strong Democrat, and it is my belief that to know us is to love us. And I think that if you join us, you won't want to go back. But even if you don't like us and you do want to go back, then all you got to do is re-register again. It's easy, and you can do it online. Yeah. If you are already registered to vote, you can change your registration online. Yeah. And that that is easy, and that because it is that easy is why I support strongly closed primaries. Yeah, so... If you haven't registered or if you want to change your party, you can still do that. Go online. Just literally Google register to vote in Oregon uh, or you go to the Secretary of State's website. And it's my really, vote. really easy. My Google, vote. My, my vote, vote, Oregon. My vote, my Oregon. Vote, Oregon. So it's, mm-hmm. it's super easy to do. And the, the primary is May 17th. So you should get on that today if you haven't registered or if you've moved or any of that good stuff. So – Chris Wig, chair of the Democratic Party, thank you so much for always being willing to come on and talk to me about all these crazy issues. Uh, I'm going to end this with a song. Shout out to Brandon Ferguson. I've already played the song on the podcast, but I wanted to play it again because I love this band. Uh, this this band is called Thinking About You Underwater. And the reason I chose to, play, to replay it is because they're going to be doing a show at Sessions Music Hall March 18th. And they're awesome. So it's going to be a great show. So... For anybody interested, that's the day after St. Patrick's Day. Uh, The track is called Delusion. This is Thinking About You Underwater with Delusion. 
Don't make me the asshole 